0: Hello and welcome to the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories. And I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you will find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Top Gun Maverick gave us all a great reason to go back to the cinema this past summer. It was a huge commercial and critical success, and it has become the top grossing film of Tom Cruise's career. So we are very excited to bring you a conversation today about the sound of Top Gun Maverick with the movie's creative team. Joining us today are director Joseph Kaczynski supervising sound editors James Mather, Al Nelson, and Bjorn Schroeder, as well as re-recording mixers Chris Burden and Mark Taylor. If you are one of the few people who didn't see the film when it came out, or if you just want to experience the magic again, it is streaming right now in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos, and I encourage you to check out the work of these great artists. It's always a pleasure when we can have directors on this show in conversation with their sound artists. And I wanted to take the opportunity to ask director Joe Kaczynski what called to him about Top Gun and why he wanted to revisit such an iconic film from over three decades ago.
1: I guess to go back to the beginning, you know, I saw the first Top Gun as a eleven year old kid in nineteen eighty six. I know exactly where it was in the theater in my hometown, you know, and I think like everyone who saw it, uh, in May of 86, um, it, it, it blew me away and, and it was something that just played all summer long. The, the music was on the radio. Uh, I had never seen a movie shot quite like that before. You know, what Tony Scott did is, is pretty amazing. Um, and it just became one of those films that became part of our culture, you know? Um, so, uh, That's my, you know, that's where I first kind of became aware of it. Then, you know, somehow found myself making a movie with Tom Cruise in 2012 uh, called Oblivion, which is my own story. And we just had uh, an incredible experience making that film together. Um, And uh, obviously there's there's some Top Gun elements in that film if you rewatch it now. Uh, certainly. And, you know, Tom said we even talked about Top Gun, which I don't remember. I must have blanked it out or something. But um, the next time it came up was actually I was at Skywalker working with Al on Only the Brave in 2017. And uh, Jerry Bruckheimer sent me a draft of a script called Top Gun 2 that he uh, he had been working on. Um, and I read the draft and it had some elements in it I liked. Uh, but I had some ideas about the direction I would be interested in taking it, so um, I went down to LA and, and met with Jerry and pitched him on a few of those ideas. And Jerry said, "This sounds great, um, but you really need to pitch it to Tom." And I was like, "Fantastic!" You know. And he said, "We got to go to Paris to where Tom is uh, shooting Mission Impossible, and you know, we're going to get a little time with him between setups. But you got to pitch him the story." So. Flew to Paris with Jerry in May of 2017, had about 25 minutes with Tom. And uh, I just kind of pitched him the four kind of main tenets of the film. Um, The first and most important being the kind of emotional spine of the film, which is this relationship or reconciliation with uh, Rooster, who is the son of his his old wingman and 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 putting that reconciliation against a mission that would take them both deep into enemy territory and i think as soon as i said that i could see the wheels in tom's head start to turn because i think to that point he resisted the idea of ever going back to this character for a lot of reasons but the main one being he needed a an emotional hook for himself to understand why go back to this character so that that i think got it going um then i just pitched this idea of how we find maverick not in the traditional navy but in the outskirts working on experimental aircraft and pushing the envelope like chuck yeager you know in in the right stuff so that whole dark star sequence was something i pitched um obviously the idea of shooting it in camera you know that's tom that's what tom does so i knew that was um an essential element. And I, I had an idea of how we might be able to accomplish it, but there was a lot to figure out. Uh, and then finally I just said, you know, we can't call it Top Gun 2. We gotta, we gotta call it Top Gun Maverick. Cause it's his story. It's another rite of passage for him. And, um, after hearing that, uh, Tom, you know, pulled out his phone and called the head of Paramount and said, get ready. We're going to make this movie. And, uh, that was now five years ago. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's been a, a total adventure and, you know, I couldn't be more proud of the film and all the people who worked on it as well, as we'll find out today. Um, but everyone just did an incredible job and, and, uh, we're all just, I think, really proud of and relieved that, you know, the movie worked.
0: The movie definitely worked. Um, Joe, you teed up something that I, I, I want to follow up on, which was this idea of shooting as much of the film as possible. Uh, you call it in camera. You know, I, I know that it would have been, it would have been uh, probably from a production standpoint, much easier to shoot all the cockpit stuff on green screen and comp it all in after the fact, but you guys went a very different direction. And that was very important to you and to Tom and, uh, and I'm sure that it created all sorts of interesting issues for the sound team to deal with. And, and, and obviously, uh, you know, uh, Mark uh, Weingarten, who is the production sound mixer, uh, is an important part of that. And he couldn't join us today. But I would love for you uh, and the team to talk about that, knowing that you were, wanted to capture as much of it live in camera as possible. How did you go about... Because another thing is, you, you know, you could have just looped everything afterwards,
1: right? There was still a lot of looping. There's still a lot of looping. Yeah, that's the beauty of Top Gun is everyone's wearing a mask. So, you know, if you come up with a better idea, you can always change what someone said, which is which is great. You know, and in fact, I think the first Top Gun, a lot of that dialogue, most of the movie was written after it was shot for that with that, you know, nice little uh, um, ability to do that. But, uh, you know, Mark did come up with a very compact digital recorder that was in the cockpit um with all the actors while we were shooting this for real, um, that did get the uh the dialogue on the day. It did get the efforts, you know, there's some things, you know, that you get in the moment that you just can't uh you could never imagine. So even if we didn't use that dialogue, we had a reference of what it was like to try to speak when you're pulling six Gs, and that's really valuable. Um but the truth of, you know, flying in these airplanes is they're not that interesting to listen to when you're inside doing it, you know, it looks spectacular um, and it feels incredible. And and from the outside, these jets are, um, you know, deafening uh, and have so much character uh, depending on, you know, where it is relative to you and how fast it's moving. But from the inside, it's very much like riding on an airliner, you know, it's that kind of constant hum. So a big challenge of this film was figuring out okay that's reality so we've got this really you know very realistic image that was captured but how do we get the emotion that we want to feel from the soundtrack um in this and that is not easy um there was a lot of obviously work and effort um from design through mixing um to achieve that and you know luckily we've got a whole panel full of experts here to to take us through that
2: no absolutely uh no i had a it was a great catching up with, uh, with Mark Weingarten after he was done with the shoot. And I know that he had a lot of challenges in the beginning just to get those recorders into the cockpit because they had to go through a lot of different steps to ensure the safety. Um, they had to make sure that they could still use the ejector seat just in case of an emergency. So like this little recorder had to eject with them, you know, they had to be separate from the cameras. I think it was really important to, to Joe and Tom and everyone in the crew, uh, that they could, uh, kind of keep it simple that they could basically trigger the recording, you know, before they took off, um, and, and do all the recordings. The, uh, and I also knew, uh, once they came back and you guys checked all the rushes that uh, Joe and you guys all just absolutely loved that sound that Mark created. And that was kind of like our, our guiding kind of position to make sure that we recaptures, as Joe mentioned, we did uh, shoot quite a bit of ADR afterwards, but to just kind of keep that intensity, And we did like, you know, little tricks, uh, kind of playing it futz back to the actors. Uh, You know, Joe and even Tom were quite involved to get the actors back into the ADR studio and kind of relive that moment, which is quite difficult because it's such a nice, warm, cozy, inviting, warm atmosphere. And like now you're trying to kind of pretend again that you're in that F 18 fighter jet kind of pulling multiple Gs. Um, But um, I think we're very, very proud of how. Um, you know, this all kind of came to sound just like Mark's recordings. And then when the final mix went to, uh, to Chris Burden, I think one of the nice things that I think was achieved was the, the sound was kind of established that it was like th- that intensity. But I think even like in the dogfight fight, when they're training, I think uh, Chris did such a beautiful job. Of just backing off enough that you're still connected to the dialogues. I think the the beauty of this mix really is that at the end you never really feel like you're you're disconnected from the dialogues, which is easy to do with that kind of intense, kind of you know heavily treated, kind of um, distorted dialogue in the beginning. So I'm very very proud of that fact.
3: Joe, you mentioned how quiet it is in there. One of the things I was grateful for <clears throat> was the fact that when they hit record. It there was no stopping and starting, take one, take two, it just recorded the whole thing. So w- one of the things we loved doing was just pouring through the production, and what I was looking for was anything that wasn't, you know, just general hum. Looking for any communications from from the tower, uh, beeps, bitch and Betty, um, all of this stuff, and so there were all of these found treasures in the production that were either just references of what the pilots hear or actual usable material that we could plug in to make the inside of the cockpit realistic because in you know in reality that was uh, what what was happening in the jet. So it was actually a, a blessing that we had all of that, you know, all those, you know, gigabytes and terabytes of extra media to pour through to start to add to the track to to add that complexity.
2: Yeah, it was always to get back to that kind of that real sound. I think that was the mantra from the beginning of the uh, of post production, that Joe, you really wanted us to get back to that that feeling that we got from Mark's recording, and uh, I think hopefully we achieved that.
4: The joy of the film is that it's it's so confident in in its characters and characterization. You can you um, use the anchor point of the real sound in the helmets and the cockpits, and then emotionally on certain scenes, we were able to just back off and, and make sure you could hear the characters' voices, and it didn't ever feel like you weren't in there with them. And we could do that throughout the film. You know, early on in The Dark Star, there's actually quite a lot of distortion on Tom's voice early on in Maverick's voice, and then it opens up when it, it just gets more emotional, and, and we, could, we could do that so confidently throughout the whole film because we just... We were so lucky. We had a story. The whole thing. We just believed it, and we could kind of. And it was great to do that. You know, when there's when there's the training run, you can just get keep the character of the voices because they all have great different voices up there. And if you just over distort it, you lose that. So we had we had the anchor points that we knew the sound that had been recorded. That's how we wanted to get as our core. But we could move and just adjust right throughout the whole film.
2: Yeah, it was great, Chris. You're uh, the the uh coyote passing out was such a great moment in the film where you kind of just kind of backed off and you kind of just really went into his head. I just absolutely love that that sequence how it came out in the end of the final mix.
0: You guys you guys are, are 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 jumping around. I've got so many questions, but since you brought that up, I that's one of my favorite sound moments in the film, uh, you know, because I think, you know, one of my favorite uses of sound design is to give you the subjective experience of what a character is going through. And you did that so well with uh, when Coyote passes out, and then there's that wonderful shot show that you designed, where his plane drops below the mountain, and we don't know, and you know, and you also take the sound out at that point until it comes roaring back over the over the mountain, and it's so satisfying. But I, there's so like I feel like we could just talk for an hour about that one specific sequence because you're playing with with dynamics and contrast and. The use of silence and quiet in this film is also really interesting to me. So, Joe, I would love to, you know, maybe we could use this just as a case study that 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 particular scene of like how you thought about the scene, how you worked with the sound team to kind of shape and sculpt this experience.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's important here to talk about um, Eddie Hamilton, our editor, uh, because the what he did in the Avid, which, you know, is kind of a temp guide um for the film uh it doesn't have the detail or the complexity or the nuance obviously that the, the the final has but what is in that avid is a an intention and a creative idea of where we want it to go so um those ideas or at least those broad moves were things that that eddie was able to mock up in the avid uh very well and kind of You know set the stage for these guys to do uh what they do best um and really bring it to life so that's kind of where that idea started um for you know that kind of subjective moment um of coyote passing out uh the disappearing under the canyon you know i mentioned earlier you know that oblivion had a lot of top gun moments in it well this is a oblivion moment in top gun because we actually did this scene uh, in Oblivion where Maverick disappears in the bubble ship and we cut the sound and and brought it right over top. So quoting ourselves a little bit there, but that's okay. You can do that, you know, every once in a while. Um, But uh, yeah, you know, one of my, it's definitely uh, one of those moments uh, in the mix where if you're watching it with the crowd, you can feel everyone hold their breath because they really think, you know, that we're, you know, we're going to pull a goose and kill one of the trainees. Um, uh, but we don't. Um, and, uh, yeah, again, just perfect execution, you know, by this team, um, in every respect, uh, when it came to the final Atmos mix.
0: Joe, I would love uh, for you to talk a little about, you know, your philosophy of, of sound. I, you know, so I, I met you, uh, during Tron Legacy when, which was the first time that you came up to I used to run Skywalker. I I was up there. That's right. You, you came up and, and we worked together. We got to work together on that film and, and you've been going back to Skywalker and working very, very consistently with the same artists. Uh, you know, so I, I, I'm, I, I know that we've all worked with a lot of directors who kind of show up periodically through the final mix, watch a playback, give notes, disappear. Joe I know that you're very you're you're very involved. So uh, can you talk a little about like I know that you and you you got Al involved uh even before you went out and shot and just talk about your philosophy of engaging the sound team and and how you use this very powerful tool.
1: Yeah, I mean, I like to engage everyone as early as possible, you know, as soon as I can uh on a on a project um just to get them thinking about it and um You know, you can come up with a lot of great ideas in prep that can help you down the road. So for this one, um, you know, when I told Al that, you know, how we were going to shoot the film, he said, boy, you know, I'd love to get out there and get some recordings as soon as possible. Um, So I had done a couple days on the carrier early on in prep uh, and had experienced what it's like to be on a carrier. And unless you've done it, you just can't imagine the, uh, the beautiful chaos slash ballet of what's happening on a deck. Um, and so I think we got Al out there with, uh, Benny Burt, I think in July or August of 2018, about a month before we started principal photography. Um, I sent out Claudio, our DP and some camera operators with a whole bunch of storyboards for the opening sequence. Uh, and I think we sent Al out and Benny with a bunch of recording equipment and basically recorded jets for a week out there. Um, and it was a great, it was so beneficial to have all that material early on because as soon as you're assembling, even your early footage, you've got uh, a lot to work with and, and, and Eddie had a tremendous library of stuff right from the beginning. So, um, it was, it was great to have that early on and great to start to, Get a feel for what the movie was gonna was gonna be like.
3: Yeah, it was it was wonderful. I'm so grateful that Joe and Tommy Harper and the production were, um, you know, eager to to kick it off so early and, and give us that opportunity. Uh, th- yeah, as Joe says, the carrier is it's it's an overwhelming, you know, dangerous uh, and and remarkable scenario. You've got five thousand people. On an island floating in the Atlantic, you know, and you've got everything happening all at once. Uh, and in this particular situation, um, it was the first time that F 18s and F 35s were actually launching together, which was really cool. This was something the Navy had never done before uh, from a carrier. Uh, on top of that, you've got Claudio and their team shooting these sequences. So it was the, the, the whole carrier was a buzz. And yes, the the, uh, the main goal, which we were uh, gratefully successful with, was to just get as much material as possible. Uh, definitely F-18s, got F-35s. There's all kinds of other sounds that you wouldn't imagine that are just uh, fantastic and useful in both in their literal representation, but also as just sound design sweeteners. Everything from the dry fire of the, of the catapults to the... Uh, the cable room below deck, where the jets are landing, and then these cables, you know, through uh, hydraulics, tighten and loosen, and and all of these various tanks and purges and doors and winds and and oh, the PA's are amazing, and you know the sounds when the boat turns around. So all these other things happening, and then uh, another wonderful um, part of this early expedition was all the R and D. And that was with interacting with the, the women and the men there in the Navy, and in particular, the pilots. You know, one of the things, you know, my I had actually been on a carrier uh, back uh, about 10 or 15 years before then. And I kind of had an idea, but um, I never really got to understand what it's like to be in the cockpit of a jet, of an F-18 um, and this was an opportunity to really sit down with a lot of those pilots and other crew members and ask a lot of questions. And one of the great things was to just, we, we would at lunch or dinner sit with these pilots, and their rule was uh, it was always a round table, and there's no limit to the number of people you can get at a round table. And so there's this camaraderie that you experience right away. And that's something that I think is reflected so well in the film. Uh, and so all these pilots just keep piling in and piling in, and there's always more room because it's a round table. And so we would ask them things like, okay, what does it sound like up there? And, you know, is it beeping a lot? Is it not beeping a lot? You know, we turn that off, but we always listen to bitch and Betty. She tells us what to do. And, you know, and, um, you know, wait,
0: wait, 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 what what is bitch and (laughs) Betty?
3: Yes. You (laughs) You take take that out. (laughs) Um, so, you know, they're, they're in these jets and the jets are very advanced. They can actually fly themselves for a lot of it, but of course, you know, the pilots, they want to drive. So the first thing they do is they get in there and there's all these altimeters and all that, that can beep or not beep, but they, they turn most of that off. So it's just you and the tower communicating and you're flying along, but, uh, and so they kind of know what's going on, but if you hear this woman with this southern accent interrupt you, that's and Betty, and if she says pull up, you better pull up or it's your ass. Uh, and that was something I wasn't aware of, and you know had uh, had we done the research online, I would have eventually found that. You know, it's definitely out there. And it's existed for a while in many, many aircraft in the Navy. But the the idea is that back in the day, they needed something more than just a beep, 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 beep because you don't know is that, you know, are my tires flat or am I about to crash and burn? So the idea was that they would have this voice that would interrupt and say, you know, pull up altitude, engine fire left, engine fire right, et cetera. And they, they actually auditioned a bunch of different voice talents. And in the end it was you know, someone who worked at Lockheed who had this, you know, this woman who had this Southern accent. She said, pull up, pull up, engine fire left, engine fire right. And I just thought that was amazing. And it's such a, a familiar thing to the pilots. And it's something that they know to listen to. So that was just, it was one of many opportunities to interact with the pilots, get an idea of what it's like to be a fighter pilot uh, in these, you know, massive machines. So many other things that you experience on that aircraft carrier, including the feel of the jets. But getting to know the people that become our characters was, I think, um, instrumental in and kind of investing yourself a little bit more in, in the film and the story.
0: Al, I, I would love to hear you just address really quickly, like the 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 technical aspect of getting field recordings in that kind of environment. Because I've i only like listened to the Blue Angels during Fleet Week in San Francisco, but I can say that's probably one of the loudest sounds I have ever heard in my entire life. And how do you actually get good recordings of something that has that much signal?
3: You bring Benny Burke. <laughs> um, we brought a lot of gear um, and a lot of what, you know, 30 dB pads, which are these things that take uh, the level and they uh, they suppress it pre the preamp so that you're not hitting your recorder. And we recorded everything digitally. Um, one thing I knew this time that I had experienced last time in the carrier uh, when I went to the Nimitz back in 2003 was there's all of this radio technology and telemetry and all of these things that are going on that, are, you know, who knows what they're doing to our insides. But wherever, whenever you would point your microphone in particular directions, you'd get this crazy feedback and garbled noise. So we kind of tried to prepare for that. Uh, and then, yeah, the levels. And the one thing that um, that I think we were successful at and and, and kudos to Mark Taylor and, and Chris uh, and James and and the UK team who um, who did this final Atmos mix but the one goal was that you wanted the track to feel like to to feel a jet the way a jet really feels uh, when you're that proximal to it and it's it's a it hits you in the gut it's just this intense level of low end and power and so we used a lot of Pads and a lot of gear to record lots of material, and the um, the other thing you learn to do is you learn to embrace distortion. The jets are literally distorting the air, and so in the beginning, I was going through and I was going, "Oh gosh, I can't use this; it's it's it's, it's clipping." And you you start to realize, no, that's that's the sound. You know, when they have something called um, there's there's military power and then there's combat power, and that's when they actually use the afterburners. So you, these jets, these F-18s get on the deck and the, the, the barrier goes up and they just go in full thrust and then they hit the afterburners and it's just this wall of power. And, you know, that final scene before they launch off the carrier, that's, you know, that's both production, right, Chris? That uh, has production in it and it also has our sounds in it. And, you know, it's just this, this massive wall. And the goal is to have the theater feel like The carrier, which I think they were very successful at reproducing. One last little side note that I realized after the fact, for those of you that are going to go record jets is I had, you know, like 50 dB of suppression on my recorder and I'm down there with earplugs and headphones because it's like 180 dB of sound, not including what you're feeling. And Benny and I are down there right below these jets that are launching and I would pull my microphone close to me, I go, okay, this is an F-18. It's going to launch in combat power. Not realizing. So then I load up my recordings and I go to, like, I have no idea what anything is because I'm bloody whispering into my microphone when I should have been screaming. And so what I would do is I would go and I would gain all my slates up, like, 80 dB, so I could understand whether it was an F-35 or an F-18, and whether it was combat or military power. And uh, th- so that was a lesson learned on the back end.
0: That's really funny. Well, I, you know, you brought up something that I think is really important to acknowledge, which was the, just the level of access and cooperation that you got from the Navy to allow you to go into these spaces and do all of this stuff. And. And you talked about the pilots. I can imagine that they were excited to help because a lot of them, I'm sure, got into the military because of the first movie, right?
3: Yeah. High fives down the hallways. You'd be walking down with your, you know, microphone and the top gun. Yeah. High five. And, you know, they were eager to tell stories and to sit and chat with you. everybody, not just the pilots, but, I, you know, I had meetings with the, the medical officers, um, the, the the CO, uh, the um, the who else? Uh, the oh, the the um, like the onboard priest or the you know, the uh, you the, know, oh, the chaplain,
0: the yeah, chaplain, chaplain,
3: yeah, great story. So, everybody was so eager to see this film being made, uh, in just this instance, and you know, there was all, all kinds of other instances going on throughout. I think the navy was not just uh happy to do it because it's it's it, it shows them in a great light, but also just because it really is um it's just a great legacy uh, uh, from the 86 film and to see that being uh, created again I'm sure everybody was very very excited
0: I'd love to hear a little bit uh, about the collaboration between the Skywalker team and the and the UK team I mean obviously um you know Joe I, I know that the original intention, um you you've been going up to Skywalker for a long time i know you got the Skywalker team was going to go to london to do the mix uh because that's where the producers were but then that was right when covid was starting right and and it it's it's kind of it's it it feels naive to even think this but remember back in march of 2020 when we thought that covid was only going to be a few weeks
1: yeah that's that's exactly why we needed the felt the need to continue the mix so yeah we were Halfway through, or maybe just wrapping up pre mixes at Skywalker in March of 2020, and uh, COVID hit and shut everything down. Um, very quickly after that, we realized we had to push our release date. Um, naively, we pushed it, you know, all the way to the fall, or even maybe it was Christmas of 2020. Uh, and we still had a film to finish, but no way to mix it. There literally was no stage that would open for us um, over here. Uh, uh, And then, you know, Tom and Eddie and Jerry found a stage uh, in the UK at Twickenham. And more importantly, a team that uh, I believe had worked on Fallout, if I'm not mistaken, as well as maybe not all on Fallout, but had all worked with Tom at some point in the past. And most importantly, with Eddie, who would kind of, be there in person every day. Um, our editor, uh, this, you know, a plus plus mixing team that was available to save us essentially and, and continue this process. So, um, you know, usually you would think it would be very hard for something like this to be handed over to another team and continue. But I think, you know, we had such a, you know, we had done three temp mixes at this point we had such a strong idea of what the mix should be but you know weren't able to finish it uh um but these you know these guys took it on and just um not only finished it but i just think took it to another level uh in the finish that was really spectacular and um you know it's just one of those cases of just having an incredible group of people pull together in a situation where you need to, to finish it and, um, just, just delivered, uh, a spectacular mix. So it was very interesting to be, you know, monitoring from, I had to monitor from Fox, a stage at Fox here in Los Angeles, basically alone or with one other person in there wearing masks and gloves and everything. But, um, we found a way to get through it. And, uh, and just you know left no stone unturned and in some ways the pandemic allowed us to make sure that you know the time wasn't an issue we 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 did everything and this is true to the mix and this is true to the visual effects and the color timing everything we really had the time to get it exactly right um for a release that you know never happened um and then you know we held the movie for two years, but we knew we had, we, you know, it it had been done uh, into the best of our ability. So yeah, these guys should definitely talk about their perspective of, of, you know, picking it up and running with it uh, on the other side.
5: (laughs) The evolution of this movie, every movie is an evolution in its own life. It has its beginning and its end. The evolution of this was, is still extraordinary. You know, you couldn't write this. You've got, you've got people invested in, the DNA of the history of the film, then the DNA of the world that the film was made about, and then the DNA of making something to match the expectations or even come close to the expectations about the American dream. And then you've got a bunch of limeys in the UK to finish it. (laughs) I mean, nobody's going to write that script, I'm just saying. it's not. But I know from working with Tom that all he wants is to feel it it's he's just got to feel it and in the absence of everybody else being there it you know eddie eddie could steer us as best he could and he did a, he always does an incredible job his ear for sound is 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 really admirable and and you know we follow it but when tom comes in the room and he he starts jumping up and down know oh, that's good okay that's good And when Tom says, guys, 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 I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. And you're like, okay, okay. And you look at Chris, it's a music cue. Are you feeling it? And Chris is like, oh, I was. I was feeling it. (laughs) That's what it's like. But no, I'm not feeling it. No, Tom, you're right. No, let's just. (laughs) So we we all have that dance that we love. And we were blessed to have the opportunity to have that dance on this movie and feel it all the way
0: through. Yeah, Chris and Mark, I would love to hear about like, what what was that mixing process like for you? You guys were at Twickenham. Joe was listening remotely from Fox in LA, thousands of miles away. It's probably not the optimal uh, way of mixing and working with a director, but talk about the challenges of doing that and how you addressed
6: it. Like we said, having Eddie there was amazing. Having Chris go through and do a pass of the music beforehand was also really helpful for me. And drilling in the mantra of, of uh, protecting the dialogue at all costs, which I think I did, um, and then just having some fun with it. Sometimes we were allowed to go to eleven; we were reined in. But um, you know, Eddie would say, well, "Let's give it a try." So we did, and you know, we slowly temper it back down to where it should be. But it was—it was just good fun, you know. It was good fun, and you know, just going through. You know, I can remember. Like I would go, I had a little cutting room off off to the side, and I would go and sit and just listen to all the tracks in isolation whilst Chris was doing music pass. learning what was there really and what kind of elements I could use when we got to things like the Canyon Run, where um, when Tom told us to turn it down, we did turn it down, but we didn't turn everything down. We kept we got these lovely kind of distorted jet buys and and the movement of the cockpit and stuff which we could maintain to um to keep the presence of the jets without losing the interiors and then when we cut to the exteriors then i was allowed to have it as it
3: were (laughs) quite quite amazingly too it's it's, thank you it's a great sequence
4: it is it's my favorite sequence i mean the communication um from the get-go to sort of keep getting the phone call where i go downstairs having had the phone call from paramount Things, saying i think i've just been asked to work on top gun and the excitement and then that was a period of time and I, again i don't know exactly how long we just used that time through james and communicating with al and bjorn getting our schedule when we knew that we'd get a hold of the pro tool sessions and then because it is about we've been to, some of us have been doing this quite a long time and you have your own way of approaching it. And we had these pre-mixed sessions from Chris Boys and Gary Summers that we had to just adapt to our way. But we did have a nice amount of time to just a few days here and a few days there, the building up to our, the schedule to actually get in the theatre. So we could, and um, Simon Chase and I would talk, we'd, we'd talk through getting getting a method for. Again, the distortions and so on, and getting that into my template and so on. And I knew that Mark, in parallel, was looking at sessions, getting his bus structure, all the sort of technical stuff, lining it up and feeling then we were going to be ready to go. Um, again, I had a l- lovely few days, two or th- three days. Eddie, Eddie, again, uh, this, is, this is referencing back to what Joe said that we, we had this guiding shape in the Avid. And again, when we spoke to Eddie, that would be, again, this, this transitional point. We'd discuss that. And he'd say, just reference that. If he's not in the room, just reference it for shape. And it would be, you know, we'd, we'd want to take it and burn that, you know, give it all what we're hearing there and, and use it. Um And he's he just, again, I had the three days on the music and it, it was a follow on from something he'd, he said many times over the years you know mission impossible a bit, a bit, a mix you know make it the best atmos mix musically you've ever done we didn't go particularly gimmicky on this mix in terms of loads of um, extra excessive spinning things around the 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 the, the 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 surrounds and the overheads i think we just again i think it's because we preached we just knew the story we knew what we wanted to approach was just so focused anyway but I obviously enjoyed all of that on the music mix. And I've told this story before. I was just sitting in the room at Twickenham doing music on my own and just hairs standing up on the back of my neck, sequence after sequence. And just, you know, Cecile Tournesac, brilliant music editor, was in there taking the latest stuff from Lorne Valve and, and right back through all the Hans Zimmer and Walter Marsh stuff. And I was just kind of so privileged and felt I couldn't quite believe This was this was I was being paid to do this. Um, It it was so so we had this transition and then we we kind of hit the ground running and um, you know we'd have a few days we had the first few days before we saw um, Tom and Chris turned up. I feel I feel sad you know that that Joe Joe was so far away and you had to just wait and there would just be this twenty four hour turnaround and the notes would come back and it's, and I you know I feel sorry we were in there like pigs and shit, you know, the proverbial, but Joe would have to wait and then we'd get the feedback. And I hope, I hope it was a fun that, that you what we did and hearing what we did, but you know, we were in the thick of it and just hopefully sending it and, and getting the feedback and we enjoyed getting the notes and we were, we were confident that we could do them and so on. But um, it's, it was unusual that filmmakers were spread across the universe for us.
2: Chris, I just want to say, like, I'm not sure if it's a uh, share with everyone, but uh, one of my favorite, and it's such a simple moment, and we we always get close to it. But the uh, musically, I thought the when we have the dark star and we kind of go up in the sky and we see that like that wide shot and the dark star kind of s- screams across the uh, uh, b- and with our planet below, and you have that beautiful transition to the music. That's probably w- my second favorite moment in the whole film. And it's just so beautifully mixed uh, with that with that final music cue that came in. So I absolutely loved that
5: moment. He felt that one. He felt that he, one. Uh, we definitely, when, we definitely, you. we all felt that one. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah.
4: When you've got visuals like that, again, it was just such a joy because it just it felt natural. Even though mixing can be difficult, and you know, we had real moments of of of, of like the opening sequence, just feeling it. Tom and Chris, just just totally feeling that we'd, we were right in the ballpark there. We had the moments, maybe like James is referring to, the training sequence had a, a music cue that Tom came in and felt he couldn't hear any of the dialogue. And that was like... And then we changed the cue and Cecile went off. They, they recut the sequence a little bit to tighten and we had the Who in there. And again, all these iconic moments in that track, which I remember as a kid, and trying to play the organ bit on a synthesizer and there it is in front of me and I'm it's cut so beautifully so quickly that you just have Roger Daltrey just being the backdrop and then all the dialogue's working and it's like thank you very much we'll go with that so you know but there were moments when and
5: but they every everything worked everything worked with a rhythm the cut the shots the cut the sound the music everything ended up working i can't think of a film that i've done where it has a a rhythm and a pattern to it where a smile is as poignant as a frown is as poignant as the drumbeat, is as poignant as a, everything It just worked like the perfect piston running on a machine. It was just, and that's not, that's not any individual that is en mass. It is the sum of its parts. It was a, you know, I, st- I, I watch it now and I'm still choked in past in, places because when something works it works every time and every you got i mean everybody everybody from the guy that took the chocks out from the plane to the guy that printed the last dcp it just it it's quite an extraordinary thing i think
0: I, I agree with you and i just you know watching the film again i was just struck by the way it was structured you know and joe how you worked with the screenplay writers and just built this script that kind of modulated in tone so much and gave such a rich, like I just made a note to myself, like back to back, this extended, we we talked about uh, uh, Coyote passing out from the G-forces, that whole moment. Then you go into the bird strike, they eject. Then the next moment is the confrontation between Maverick and Rooster, and then Ice's funeral, and then Maverick gets fired. It's like just moment after like intense emotional moment after moment, but also a lot of Modulation. And there's some music in some of that, and some of it, it dies back. And I just, I love, I love the way you really just, Joe, you really just took the audience on a, on a journey through this and, and the sound really reinforced that.
1: Yeah. I mean, the funeral was one that I remember from the first time, even in the Avid, mocking up the idea of using the actual bugle player on the day when we shot that at Point Loma Cemetery going into uh harold faltermeyer's cue from the first film you know taking us through you know maverick going to cyclone then maverick going to penny um that was one of those sequences i remember just from very early on just working in the avid uh beautifully um i'm glad that all works for you you know when when you talk about stuff like that you know i i I would like to say we got it right the first time, but, you know, I shot two additional scenes that were between the crash and, uh, and Maverick confronting rooster. There were two scenes that we shot that went between those two moments um, in the original uh, screenplay and the way we shot it. And, you know, it only worked when we pulled those out and, you know, it's a, and, and the who, you know, someone mentioned how great the who works, you know, that was the, 60th track that we tried over that sequence you know um there is so much iteration so much trial and error so much getting it wrong the first time and going back and trying again um but uh you know in the end um you know i guess it's like they say you know filmmaking it's it's with much effort making it feel effortless and uh that's really uh the case here um a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of trial and error, um, knowing that we had to get it right because it was Top Gun. Um, Tom said from the beginning, you know, Joe, this is going to be like hitting a bullet with a bullet, uh, which is, you know, quite, you know, something you want to hear on the first day from, uh, <laughs> from Tom, um, but, uh, but, but, you know, as, as it's been referred to, it really was, a, a true passionate um, effort by everyone who worked on it. And I think you, hopefully you feel that in the final product. Um, and, uh, and we all, at least I had a blast making it as hard as it was. It was really, really fun. I can't believe, uh, I got the opportunity to do it and, um, I couldn't be more proud of all the people that worked on it and and made it what it is. That's great.
0: Well, um you guys have been very patient. we're at the end of our time, but I do want to give uh, sometimes when we when we have a group like this, we like to go around and give everybody just a chance to to mention their favorite sound moment in the film, something that when the movie plays just kind of makes you feel all giddy inside or or brings back a a, a fun memory and uh, Bjorn, you mentioned something, but I'm, I'm going to give everybody an, an opportunity to to pick one one sound moment that makes you particularly joyous uh, when the
3: movie rolls by al you want to kick us off uh i have many moments mostly mostly it was the ones where we finally got that yes that's it <laughs> uh i do love the, i do love the canyon run uh you know you can't you can't beat that uh the 215 and uh and then uh, i think it's payback who goes no it's, it's hangman who goes damn so yeah great moment and seeing it in the theaters that's my favorite sound moment <laughs>
0: i g- agree with you heartily on that bjorn what uh, what about you
2: oh gosh i already mentioned like uh, both of them of course the canyon run like i think we all love because it it's such a great uh great sequence that showcases all the you know the different nuance of our sound work but i also love the the moment when uh when uh, rooster saves uh, maverick and then maverick runs over to him and kind of pushes him over <laughs> in the forest and that's just kind of that lighthearted comedy moment it's it's, it's just a great kind of like relief for the audience too and I just I really enjoyed
4: it, it was such a subtle thing but it's one of my favorite films parts of the film Chris how about you I I'm gonna probably go for the Canyon run although there's many I it's it's because the way I, I could be a bit more specific um there are many elements of that uh, all the way it builds it builds it builds you because you realize that the guys watching, the pilots watching are watching a screen, a graphic, and it never feels, it feels like they are. So every time you cut, the cutting back and forward is just so wonderful because you never think, oh, they're just watching, like a graphic going through. They're in there with it, the way they move forward, the way they move back. And again, sorry, Mark, I'm going to talk about the music. Um, no, it's the way, the way them, but it's because of the effects and because of all the way the way the dynamic builds in the whole sequence, the music just reveals beautifully and it goes and keeps going. So even two thirds of the way through when one of my favourite shots, which is the beautiful shot, Joe, of the, the, the low level shot across the desert. I think it may be in the top two, three shots. I just, I don't know. I love it so much. And the music is starting to reveal at that point and, and And you get the thematic thing starting to build and you've still got a place to go. And you're not, I didn't have to go full level there. And it just rises until it goes until the the, the wonderful sort of release of air, to, and then just the single or two voices in the control in the control room with all the pilots. So there you go. Yeah, two fifteen. Sorry,
0: Mark. How about you?
6: Well, I, I would say the Canyon Run, but I also love the opening. And I was working with a uh, guy who uh, I was wearing my Top Gun hat, and he said, "Did you work on Top Gun?" I said, "Yeah." And he said, "I'm really looking forward to it." And I said, if you don't get goosebumps in the first 20 seconds, I'll buy your ticket. And he hasn't contacted me, so I assume he <laughs> liked it. <laughs> but um, I think it was really well done. I love the music, obviously, Chris. Um, and and uh, I just, yeah, that would be my second favorite because obviously McCannion's first. But.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you brought that up, Mark, because I, I, one of the things that struck me about the movie as well is like, you know, James, you talked about acknowledging and and the, the DNA of the original and the movie, I mean, from right from the get go, Joe, like you use the same font for the titles. Like we have, you know, you, you even you, you, it's 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 Don Simpson's presentation credit with Jerry Brookheimer, yeah. you know, like and you, you, you use that iconic theme music and then we go right into, into danger zone. And so like, you know, from the very beginning that we're going to be steeped in the DNA of the original, but you also weren't a slave to it, you know, like this is a very fresh film and it tells a very different story. And I thought you just balanced that so beautifully.
1: Yeah. I mean, I always wanted the opening of the film to tell the audience, don't worry. We love Top Gun as much as you do. Like you're, you're, you're going to be okay. We're going to take, this is a Top Gun movie. Um, and I, so I always loved the idea that the first few minutes of it, uh, felt like top gun but then obviously you're on a modern carrier uh you're seeing f-18s you're seeing f-35s and very quickly you know as maverick pulls into china lake Naval air station and we reveal the dark star you see that we're going to take you in another direction you know this is not the top gun you remember uh uh but yeah i just couldn't resist um i couldn't resist the simpson Bruckheimer logo having grown up seeing that you know um and uh and yeah it's fun it's fun to watch that first few minutes with an audience you can just kind of feel it that um the anticipation absolutely
0: james what about
5: your uh your favorite scene first 10 minutes it's a film of its own the moment when the dark star goes off in a puff of that that first 10 minutes done i mean like i'll sit here for five hours um But being a soft old git, I think the moment where you cross between the crash flashbacks and Penny sees Maverick through the window and she recognises that something's not, this isn't Mav, there's somebody else there. And the music changes between Great Balls of Fire and the score from the thing. I, I, I hate to say it, but I have not yet not Shed a tear at that moment. I'm an old softie. <laughs> but that is storytelling at its peak. That that's it. That's Maverick right there. Joe, I hate to put you on the spot, but you, you,
0: you gotta you gotta you gotta pick one favorite moment.
1: Boy, that's that's tough. Um you know, I'll go with a moment that that was, you know, again, it was something discovered in editorial. The script wasn't written, it wasn't written in structurally, it wasn't even two scenes that were supposed to go next to each other um uh but it's for me that it's the music the sound and the image of of this cut that uh i was always really really proud of and that's from um the moment in the film with mav when he's embracing penny on the beach before having to go to battle and the cut to the bow of the uh teddy roosevelt carving through the ocean um, that moment with Hans's score there, uh, taking us from Act Two to Act Three, uh, for me is is one of those moments that um, I just you know, for me kind of just worked. That's great,
0: gentlemen. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure taking the time to talk with you guys about Top Gun: Maverick. Really appreciate you all coming on the the Dolby. Institute podcast and telling us about uh, how you made this remarkable achievement congratulations to all of you thanks Glenn Glenn.
1: appreciate it thanks guys
0: thank you to Joe, James, Al, Bjorn, Chris and Mark for joining us today to talk about Top Gun Maverick and thank you to our friends at Paramount and Skywalker Sound for helping put this conversation together as I mentioned up top Top Gun Maverick is streaming now in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos so please check that out But before you go, please make sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms and our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, thanks again for joining us. This has been the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines, and our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thank you for listening.